0: This is Kyle Hartung from Jobs for the Future, or JFF, and this is the Building Equitable Pathways podcast. In this series, leaders from across the country working at the intersection of K-12 education, post-secondary education and training, and workforce development will share their insights and perspectives grounded in practice to shed light on the why and the how of identifying and dismantling inequitable structural and systemic barriers to improve educational and career outcomes for youth. In today's conversation, we will continue to explore themes and ideas we heard about in episode one, about work underway to confront and take action on the durable inequities we see in the United States with regard to outcomes for Black and Latinx youth and for youth experiencing poverty. As we discussed last time, racial equity work takes place at personal, interpersonal, organizational, community, and structural levels. In this episode, We will dive more deeply into and explore what it looks like to convene partners and support equitable change in the education to career ecosystem. Our guests today represent organizations that sit at the intersection of K-12 education, post-secondary education and training and employers, and the
1: change they are looking to seed is equally cross-cutting. Hi, I'm John Furr. I'm the Executive Director of Education Systems Center at Northern Illinois University, or Ed Systems as we call ourselves, and we support state-level and community-level work in the areas of college and career pathways, building bridges for students into post-secondary and data.
2: So, I am Michelle Jacobs, Senior Director of United Way of Greater Atlanta, located in Atlanta, Georgia. And we are a nonprofit organization that's focused on solving complex issues in education, income, health, and homelessness.
0: John, Michelle, it's a pleasure to have you join us. And thank you both for lending your voices and insights to this conversation. You are both leaders in intermediary organizations that are focused on equity and a commitment to motivating systems-level leaders to identify, acknowledge, and dismantle inequitable structural and systemic barriers. And you both have important and thoughtful visions that guide your work. Can you talk about what your vision for this work is?
2: Yeah. So United Way of Greater Atlanta really is about engaging and bringing people together and resources to drive sustainable and equitable improvements um, for the well-being of children and families in our communities. In 2017, United Way decided to launch a child well-being movement, which is really about improving the well-being of 250,000 children in our Greater Atlanta region, 13 counties by 2027. And so, That is one of the reasons why United Way has really been focused on um, building out these equitable pathways, um, because we really are centered on these communities and really trying to just improve the resources and making a lot of systemic changes within those communities.
0: So, John, can you talk about Ed System Center's theory of change and what's the problem you're solving for and how is that similar to or different to what we hear United Way of Greater Atlanta taking on?
1: For our theory of change to be effective advocates and working in policy at the state level, we need to be doing some deep work in communities and being able to elevate those voices up. Our our work is focused on kind of three overarching areas around college and career pathways, around what we call bridges to post secondary, which is both expanding early college credit and avoid and and trying to reduce uh, remedial outcomes for students. And we've really been focused over the course of the last several years about making sure that we are actively advancing racial equity across all the work areas that we're doing.
0: How do you build and communicate a a shared understanding among all of these stakeholder groups about what centering equity in practice actually means?
1: Well, for us, I mean, this has been a real journey for, for our organization. And we've certainly, you know, dating back to well before 2020, we're looking at how we frame our equity work as eliminating disparities in education and employment outcomes But in spring of 2020, with the murder of George Floyd and other Black Americans, with really looking at the impact of the COVID crisis, you know, we came to the conclusion as an organization that we needed to make sure that we were being much more explicit about advancing racial equity and and talking about that specifically and looking at it from both a mirror and windows approach. So from the mirror standpoint, we knew that as an organization, we needed to spend a lot of time for us to norm around what we meant by advancing racial equity, kind of what Uh, what our strategies and our language would be for that work. But we also needed to think about as we're doing that internal work, how is it reflecting out to what we're doing with our state and community level partners? So some of the ways that we were looking at that from the Windows approach was saying within our community networks that we can both be a lot more intentional about where we're working. So thinking about where can we have the most impact On those individuals within the state of Illinois that are furthest from the opportunities that are there in education workforce. So really trying to deepen our partnership in different parts of the state where we felt like we could have that impact. And and also making sure that we were kind of supporting communities to be able to have a racial equity frame with the data that we're presenting to them, the strategies that we were helping to support them to develop. And then at the state level, you know, we have the privilege as an uh, organization and kind of the decade of work that we've been doing to set at a lot of tables where decisions are made and policies are developed.
0: I love hearing the way you you frame the work through this idea of the mirror and the window. And Michelle, I'm I'm curious, as you listen to and, and familiar with John's work, how is this similar or different from how you're building a shared understanding in the Atlanta region around the racial equity imperative and what that looks like in practice? How are you taking that on and What do we have to learn about what's happening down in Atlanta?
2: Yeah, so um, youth furthest from opportunity definitely uh, strikes, you know, similarities. Um, So United Way has really been addressing systemic issues because Greater Atlanta is always put at the bottom of the list when we talk about The U.S. cities where opportunity and mobility, when we talk about low-income children and their destination, you just heard me state that the zip code determines uh, their destination. And so we've been uh, marked by Bloomberg, which really has called Atlanta the capital of inequality. And so we have really spent the past I would say three years really recognizing that we need to reduce and prevent racial inequalities across systems, right? Um, That impact child well-being, looking at education, health, housing, and economic stability across the greater Atlanta region. And we know that these racial inequalities did not appear overnight. We know that the results, there's not a single set of factors and decisions um, that are going to take, are going to move us in the right direction. So to have more equitable outcomes in education, income, and health, we must really leverage this moment to spark change and how we're influencing, deciding, uh, learning, and engaging uh, leaders across the greater Atlanta region. And so one clear example of how we're doing that is through the work with Career Ready ATL, which is our youth apprenticeship ecosystem. And so essentially, that's going to be focused on Black, Hispanic, and youth furthest from color. Um, really providing them multiple pathways um, to economic well-being and self-sufficiency. And so that's really why uh, one of the areas that we really decide to really put our focus in is really around these career pathways and education as we are addressing all of these other racial inequities uh, that exist that are impacting youth in the Great Atlanta region.
0: Michelle, that is a great stage for where I really wanted to take the the this conversation. So Introducing this point that I want to dig into as we think about systems building and systems change work. And so by the very nature of how both of your organizations are structured, you aren't solely responsible for implementing the changes you want to see. You need... Other folks to do this work with. This is not a boutique initiative that you can launch, lead, and run independently. You're both working inside of and outside the system. And so, Michelle, would love to have you continue that uh, to talk a little bit more about the career ready ATL work. How are you mobilizing the right stakeholders to coalesce and collaborate on bringing this vision into reality?
2: Yeah. So we know system change is is hard work. So as we continue, as United Way continues to advance our child well-being agenda, we're mobilizing change for children and youth by fostering strategic partnerships. Like we're being very intentional about those partners that we bring to the table. Um, we're scaling best practices, not just within Atlanta, but looking across the entire U.S. to see who's doing this work well and what pieces or components really fit within Metro Atlanta. We really are investing in data-driven solutions, right? We're allowing the data to tell us where those first places that we should go when we're talking about um, developing career pathways for youth. And we're really also promoting uh, civic engagement and advocacy as a part of the work we're doing to address equity issues. Um, So with Career Ready ATL, this is definitely a unique opportunity where we're building the system to really increase access to equitable education and economic opportunities, right? But specifically for black and brown youth, that's an important part of this work that we're building out because if your zip code is the greatest predictor of how you're going to be successful, we need to start with the populations that are furthest from opportunity and really need our support the most. And so we realize that the youth apprenticeship is a powerful racial equity strategy. So as we think about increasing access to those in-demand, high-wage jobs, we're providing real work experiences um, with professional skills and technical skills for youth, we're enabling these youth to access those industry-recognized credentials and degrees without taking on more debt. We're really allowing you to earn while they learn so they can provide for themselves and their families. And this is really important. We're also providing access to social capital by connecting you to employers, adult mentors, colleagues in their fields to give them this access. So as we think about the partners that we're bringing to the table one unique opportunity that United Way had is that we actually took key stakeholders from across the U.S. It was a couple from Atlanta, New York, Seattle. We all brought them together to spend a week and really dig into what does youth apprenticeships really mean for Atlanta and what are those key things that we should be focused on. When we all came back to Atlanta, it was very easy for us to mobilize this change that we're trying to see because we had that opportunity to really share and grow and learn with each other and really develop that trust. When we convene people, I think we just have the skill sets to be able to really build that trust across multiple partners that we know is going to help us get to change. We realize that we can't do this alone. So we need to mobilize very diverse group of partners in order to be successful in the work that we're doing.
0: I really love how this began with, you need to design a regional initiative to suit the unique needs and context of the Atlanta region. But you brought in a set of national voices to help you not just design that, but to identify the right problems that needed to be solved. John, I would love for you to, to build on this. So, you know, I know you've been, you've been working in, with the power of a network for quite a while. And what is that power? And how are you bringing people together across a state context to really get centered and focused on equity, not just in access, but in the outcome proposition of the education and career pathway work you're doing?
1: One of the big learnings for us as an organization is that It's not enough just to pass state policy or to be involved with that unless you're really working at the community level to help move it forward. And it's almost been 10 years ago now where we were looking around the state of Illinois and there were a number of communities kind of doing that hard work that Michelle was talking about, about like really bringing together school districts and community colleges and workforce organizations and employers and community-based organizations to to align around better education and workforce outcomes But there was no support network for those communities, right? They were kind of doing it on a one-off basis, figuring it out on their own. And we partnered with some other organizations in the state and said, hey, like, actually, we can create a support network for these different communities that are doing that tough cross-sector work and bringing these partners together to try to help organize better outcomes for the young people and the the adults within within their community. So that was when we launched uh, what was then known as the Illinois 60 by 25 network. So the 60 by 25 refers to the state's post-secondary attainment goal. We recently changed our name to the Illinois Education and Career Success Network, which is great because now we don't need to change our name when we get to the year 2025. But what this network does, it brings together uh, across the state of Illinois, all communities where really to be a part of this network, you've got to agree that you're going to bring to the table Your school district uh, with commitments from leadership, your community college, other post-secondary partners, employers, and community-based organizations, and have a common vision for how you're going to be addressing better education and workforce outcomes for your young people. And one of the things we're doing as network organizers is that we're providing that peer-to-peer learning space. So how do you actually, because this is, again, this is work where coming in from the outside, we can't give them all like the solution. They need to learn from each other. They need to have those conversations together. And we do provide some technical assistance in areas where we have some expertise and supports. We're able to provide, uh, serve as a conduit as for financial resources to help drive that work. And also, we provide a lot of data. So we're able to kind of access our state-level partners to be able to obtain data that can integrate across, you know, both the, the uh, school district and K-12 and the college space so they can be able to better assess those outcomes for the equity goals that we have. And working with this network, with our recent conference, we we're focusing on issues of, of how do we put equity first within our initiatives. Again, continuing to focus on how do we provide data and how are we supporting the right initiatives to help catalyze change across those communities.
0: So you both have, and, and obviously there's more work that you you are are both leading and responsible for, but you've both described work that is really targeted and really focused on changing the narrative about the lived experience of people in systems. And I want to keep digging a little bit deeper in terms of the impact of that work. So in our last episode, we talked about the fruits and roots of racial inequity. And what are we talking about here? The deep-seated beliefs. There's policies. There's practices that lead to inequitable outcomes. Michelle, you kind of referenced this, that there's a lot of pieces that go into realizing the outcomes that we see. And then there's ways that these manifest in our daily lives and our work, in our organizations, in our partners' work, on the ground with people, how often do you find yourself or do you find your team in conversations with these partners that you have that are actually centered on root causes as opposed to the manifestations, right, or, or just the fruit?
1: No, Kyle, we, we do engage in kind of the nature of our role in a lot of conversations with District and college administrators around pathway programs. And I, I want to talk about one example. We've had a strong focus as an organization, really, you know, for the 10 years we've been around on reducing remedial needs and kind of barriers for placement into college level coursework. And you know you you use the root and tree analogy. I want to kind of refer a little bit. And I don't know if people have seen the um, equity analogy with kids watching a baseball game, right? And there's the equality version where they all get the same box, and like the short kid still can't see over the fence, and but the taller kid can. But then there's the um, equity approach where you're making sure that all of those kids have the ability to get the supports, the boxes stacked that they need to be able to see the baseball game. So the reason I'm talking about that in the remedial context, so our state's done a lot of work to create transitional courses for students in their senior year of high school. And we've led this policy work where students are able to take courses in math and English that guarantee them placement in college level coursework. We've also had a big movement toward multiple measures placements to make sure, again, that it's not just One standardized assessment, but there's multiple ways students can show that they're ready for college-level English and math. But for many of those initiatives, they're oftentimes kind of providing more boxes to see over that fence of a placement requirement that's there, that's there that you know kids have to be able to work through to access college-level courses. And more and more, what we're seeing in our pathways, like we've been having conversations with some communities that are doing this work in the IT pathway space, for example. Where they have an English placement requirement for their IT web development courses and starting to ask, why do you have that in the first place? You know, Why can't you just take down that fence? Or why can't you see if students are actually being successful in your introductory level IT class? Yeah, then they should be able to be based on that to get into that next level class. You don't need this artificial placement barrier that you've always had. What this goal is, is again, to allow that career, the access to that career focused coursework. And so there's more and more of those conversations about removing those fences in the first place.
2: I think that analogy is one that makes a lot of sense to a lot of people, right? When you can actually visually see um, the differences. And the, I think the piece I want to lift up is in Atlanta, we do a lot. It's, it's very siloed, right? And so I think when we think about um, trying to get to the root causes versus the manifestations, oftentimes I don't think we can get to either one very clearly because everyone's on their own agenda, right? And so I think one of the Unique things about the role that United Way plays is that being able to bring people together to really focus on the topic and really to get them to lean in um, and really just be honest about what's happening, you know, in our city, in our counties across the region, is a unique skill set that we have. But I think as a part of this work that we are truly building out, where we're looking at a lot of the root causes when we think about um, what's happening with our youth in Greater Atlanta and why the zip code is is the predictor of their future. You really have to start with the youth, right? You can be in a room with lots of partners making lots of assumptions, making a lot of analysis about what's wrong uh, with the systems, what's wrong with the policies that are in place, um, what's wrong with the practices. But at the end of the day, it's, it's really important for you to talk to the people that are getting the services. And so as a part of the career-ready ATL work, we really are going to center youth voice. We really want them to be a part of the development, you know, the management of the youth apprenticeship ecosystem. And so we want to really ensure that we're reflecting like their needs and aspirations. And I think We're able to get to some of the root causes by having these very honest and intentional conversations with them. We're doing lots of listening sessions where we really are asking the questions of what industries do you have interest in? what are the things that you need to be able to get there? And a lot of what we're hearing from the youth in terms of like the root causes is that the systems continue to keep failing me. And everyone that I'm speaking with when I'm seeking support or when I'm seeking help is blaming me, right? They're saying, well, did did you turn in that assignment to get the grade? Uh, did you submit the application to make sure that you got accepted into the programs? Um, but what we clearly keep hearing as a root cause are like the systems are not set up for me to be successful. And so it is really important for United Way and all of our partners to step up and collaborate and really think, what is it that we need to be doing? We're hearing them say this, but what are the next steps that we need to take? So I think a lot of what it's definitely interrelated, but I think one of the key things that we're going to be doing is bringing young people to the table to really help us to solve a lot of the things that they're experiencing when we were talking about these post-secondary opportunities.
0: You have an acumen and a technical skill about trying to move this forward and you have a vision. Are there instances when you've tried to, you're, you're standing there metaphorically with a partner, you're looking at the roots of this problem and they're just not seeing it or they're pushing back on you or they're saying, no, 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 we need that fence there. Or no, 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 that's not really what's happening here.
1: Yeah. You know, I'd I'd say Cal, like this is long-term work, that requires a lot of change mindsets about, you know, and really get I think there's really been a major shift among many of our partners about, you know, the fact that they need to be oriented towards student success, as opposed to sort of waiting out those who can't make it right. That's a that's a really massive change in mindset right? That um, I, I think all of our systems, the national and state level and the local level are going through in different ways as we're thinking about how are we meeting, you know, the long-term education and, and workforce goals that that we all have. So, you know, there's a lot of patience, right? And it's about trying to understand, okay, yes, we know that you're really beholden to that fence, <laughs> but let's let's start to question and work through it. And, and if you're not able to give up right now that particular need for the fence, and let's again, let's focus on building up those boxes to keep carrying out that analogy, and building the relational trust to hopefully get to a point where you understand that you all have aligned goals for the success of the young people that you're working with, and for them to hopefully get to a point where they can realize that maybe some of the fences that they've held onto really tightly don't need to be there in the first place. But yeah, I mean, it's... uh the pace of change is a lot different in each community we we work on. And that's part of the process.
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll just take it one step further, John, and say that like the speed of trust, right? Mm-hmm. The speed of trust is really important along with the patience. And just thinking about the analogy of the fence, getting partners to see that maybe with the fence, the material that the fence is made out of doesn't support the youth, right? We made these fences in the 1950s, the education system and all these components, right? And for some reason we want to hold on to those even though the pandemic has shared with us you need to change, right? Things need to happen, but for some reason it's like nope, that 1950 material is the best thing we've come up with to date. And right. I'm not even really, to. I'm not willing to go to Home Depot, Lowe's, or any other store, right, to kind of figure out what other material is available. But I often think that um, having patience with our partners to helping them to get there, right, the ones that just can't see the vision because they're too stuck in their own box or to focus on what their organization mission is to see like the bigger picture of what you're trying to accomplish. Um, So I definitely think it's patience, but I also think it's the piece about the speed of trust and how once you get to a certain level with your partners, there are credible things that you could do together together once you get there. But I think a lot of this hard work that we're doing, whether we're using the collective impact framework or any of these other frameworks, as we're talking about the root causes and the manifestations of what's actually happening with the youth and the systems that we're trying to change, a lot of things happen at the speed of trust. And it's, it's a long-term game that you just have to uh, show up every day uh, and just continuing to fight the good fight.
0: In this work, and I hear this in your comments now, and I know that this is what we're taking on together in this broader equitable pathways community of practice. On the one hand, when we talk about equity, we're talking about the state that we want to reach, where race you know, is not a statistical determinant, uh, where demography is not a predictor of destiny, or, or Michelle, as you talk about it, zip code. And we also talk about equity as it relates to the process and the experience. Um, And it's about, so then we're talking about how we do our work and the processes we use, the voices we choose to elevate and welcome into the conversation, the metrics, you know, John, you talked really clearly about data that we use to measure success. Uh, And so the space we're working in is one that's very much about these narratives that we tell ourselves about why things are the way that they are. And then our work feels very much about adjusting our practice to keep equity in position As the North Star and I and I hear intimations of this already, but would love to hear a little bit more about where you've seen shifts in mindsets that have affected change in your partners and like what was the catalyst for that.
1: Yeah, I I can definitely say that at least for us, the how of how we've kind of gone about this work has been as important as sort of the the what outcomes that we're trying to achieve it kind of hearken back to the conversation before about our mirror and, and windows approach to the equity work from mirror side. We've learned a lot from the liberatory design mindsets, which is a kind of statement of mindsets uh, that we were introduced to by partners at the um, national equity project, which through work that they had done through the Stanford D school and these get a mindsets such as embracing complexity and, focusing on human values and and building relational trust that we try to make sure that we are both incorporating within our internal processes and works and for all of our project spaces that we kind of reflect on how are these mindsets coming to the forefront, but also working with our external partners as well and really trying to understand that, again, if you're bringing together a group of folks from a school district and from a community college who might not have always worked as closely in the past We've got to go through some of those processes that Michelle talked about for kind of creating that relational trust where they believe that they can work together and have some common goals before you start strategizing about what the specific solution is. So I I think that's just been a lot of the process work that we're making sure that we're focused on as an organization and also introducing our partners to so that they're kind of thinking about what are the mindsets, what's the how about how we're going to go about this. How are we going to understand the human values that we're each coming to approach this work? And this has been this has been a really tough couple of years, right? And, and I think we've we've appreciated the fact that building long term pathways might not be your most immediate demand when you have family members that are sick and dying of COVID, or literally when you've had a student shout out the parking lot of one of your school buildings, which is you know things that have come up in our conversations. And so these are all things that we are you know we're very much attuned to to making sure that where we're really looking at the human values in this work and what all individuals are coming to the table with, and that we're kind of working through those relational processes from the long-term work while we're keeping in mind kind of the short-term demands and challenges that all the humans involved are, are, are having as, as they're coming to the table.
0: Because the, the immediacy of the now, it's in front of us. It's in front of the, the the communities that we're working in and and people's lived experience. And I so appreciate that you're putting a rightful spotlight and respect around that while also saying, and there's work that needs to be done here. And so Michelle, like maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Cause I saw, you yeah. know, I know uh, everyone can't see you, but I can. And I saw <laughs> you kind of lean in there and yeah. would just love to capture some of your own insights about what you're learning about what it's taking to move partners forward with you in this direction.
2: It's a, it's a tough process, right, to get partners all, all on the same page about what you're trying to accomplish. But one of the things that comes to mind um, is that United Way did this 21-day uh, racial equity challenge, right? It wasn't just for our internal staff. Um, it was for donors. It was for volunteers, anyone that was connected to our Facebook page, right, for them to take this challenge. And there was reading of articles. There was watching of videos, Um, listening to podcasts um, about race and equity, and really just exploring racism on multiple levels, um, looking inward, you know, at internalized racism, um, exploring interpersonal racism, and really helping people to broaden their view about the institutional and structural racism, right, that exists and how each of these different levels can get us to drive change. And so I think one of the things that, um, well, there's plenty of things that came out of that and, and the feedback that we received from people. But I think one of the things that that really set the stage stage four was to get people to think differently about what we're doing in communities, how we're showing up in communities, really ensuring that the children and youth have the resources and things that they need. One of the things that United Way really wants to create is like a more flexible, responsive you know, city where there's access to resources for children across the greater Atlanta region. How do we help them reach their full potential? As we looked at those different levels of race And look with the the inequities. I think a lot of people were able to see, we've been talking about these zip codes. We've been talking about how that's the greatest predictor uh, for children. But I think when they start to think about the structural pieces behind it, or the institutional racism, the pieces that exist, it really gave them the opportunity to really just kind of pause for a moment and to truly reflect on our city really needs to do a lot of work. As much history, rich history as we have um, with the civil rights movement and all of those pieces, there's still so much more work that we have to do in order to make sure that our Black and Brown youth are safe. Um, they have access to the resources that they need. And so we really have been pushing to say that we want Atlanta to be known for equity of opportunity. This inequity, the low economic mobility, like that's not really what we want to continue to be known for. So we have, we really want to lean in on our role, invite partners to join us, um, to really continue to, you know, use our convening, being that catalyst, being that influencer, and really coordinating partners together so we can really develop those strategies that are really going to help us to invest in the efforts to create lasting change. This is something that an old saying, you can't just put a band-aid on it, right? But we really are looking to make deep change within our communities, but it starts with each individual partner really reflecting on not just what their organization stands for, but what does that person stand for that you have at the table?
0: You both enter and engage in this work with such incredible uh, thoughtfulness and intentionality and, frankly, humility. And you're both, I recognize you both here, not just as leaders, but as learners. And I see you as students of your own experience, and I hear it in the way you talk about not just what you have done, but what you're striving to do and accomplish. So I'm curious, from that standpoint of being a learner of your own experience, what have you actually found was easy to overlook in the work of centering racial equity in this conversation around systems design that you have actually found is critical to being able to do that work well?
2: It's an interesting uh, question. I think um, one of the things that I have just learned just over the years is really to be very intentional to how I'm listening to youth, right? We bring them in the room. We have them to complete surveys, and then they're like, you know, what are you really doing with this? Is it, you know, is change really going to happen? So, one of the key things that I've really learned is to, to truly be to truly listen to the things that they're saying and really. Stretch myself to think differently about how we could do the work in order to make change for them. Um, so I would say that that's the key thing as a learning. Like I really have changed how I listen, and not only to the youth but also to the partners. So doing more listening than speaking sometimes is really valuable. But specifically when the youth are speaking, I would say uh, that's that's the biggest area of learning for me because it shows you things that are not the best, right? It, it shows you things about our system that make maybe you've never even thought about before that has impacted them when you really listen. And I think it just allows you to strategize, you know, in better ways.
1: Yeah, just to just to build on that, I mean, that's been a real focus for our organization the last few years is how are we making sure that we are truly centering student and practitioner and uh, practitioner voice within this work and, you know, I think sometimes as a state-level intermediary or the regional levels, it, it can be easy to forget the need to make that a priority, but we've been we're making some shifts. I mean, one area within our data work, and I think this has been a big mindset shift for us over the last several years, is that, you know, oftentimes we would do work to bring together data and we would look at data on remediation rates and early college credit and college-going rates and say, all right, you know, here. We've looked at this disaggregated data. Here's a strategy and solution that we need to start to point on and focus on. But now I think how we're looking at this with our community partners is saying, all right, we're looking at this data and this is beginning to point to us some uh, more information that we need to get from the students that are reflected in the data to understand what's really happening, right? And that's an important shift. So it's not just saying we're going to look at these number points and then jump right to action, We're going to use this to direct what we need to hear from, from students to be able to understand why, why are there these challenges with this particular group in terms of their success rates and to be able to build our strategies off, you know, that have the foundation of that student voice.
0: Thank you both for those moments
1: of, of uh, both
0: vulnerability, but also clarity about what, what is really important. And there is so much for other people to learn about what you are doing, but also, to engage in the important work that we collectively still have in front of us. Um, I truly appreciate your ongoing partnership and your provocations today and your collaboration. I celebrate you both. Thank you so much for joining this conversation.
2: Yeah, thank you for having us.
0: My conversation with Michelle and John today highlighted an imperative to root the work of racial equity and systems building in communities themselves and how we need to enter this work with both intentionality and patience. How we need to seek out and truly listen to the voices of our partners and the youth who live and work in the communities about what they need. Each in their own ways, John and Michelle show us what it looks like to lean into the truth of the adage that relationships move at the speed of trust. United Way of Greater Atlanta and Education Systems Center also stand out to me as great examples of organizations honoring the fact that context and place matter and what it looks like to lead from a place of humility. They are creating spaces for their teams and their partners to come together, to learn from each other through real and honest conversation about the vision, strategies, and narrative change work that will advance a vision for racial equity in their contexts. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to resources and landing pages to learn more about and from the work they are doing. In our next pair of episodes, we will welcome new voices to the conversation to explore the role intermediary organizations play in centering and building strong data strategies to better shape and advocate for policy solutions in building coherent and equitable pathway systems. Thanks for listening to Building Equitable Pathways, brought to you by JFF. Together, we're driving transformation of the American workforce and education systems to achieve equitable economic advancement for all. To learn more about Building Equitable Pathways and our coalition of partners, visit us online at jff.org. And we want to hear from you and have you join the conversation. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. And tune in for our next episode.
1: This is Kyle Hartung from JFF. Signing off until next time.